Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, Billy, how you doing? Good, how are you? I'm all right. Sorry, I wasn't trying to one-tone you then. I realised I, con- <laughs> I hadn't connected you up to the desk. I was like, oh, he's going to think I'm one-toning him, and I expect him to call me back. <laughs> how is life your side of the pond, my friend? Oh, you know, it's another day. Yeah. It's another day. Probably, uh, I, you know, different, but probably equal to your life on your side. Yeah, I mean, it's just... <sighs> It's the the most frustrating and maddening thing for me. Obviously, you know, the, the loss of life is awful and you, right. f- you feel for people. And I've got a couple of friends now that have lost parents and it's just, you know, it's mortifying. Aside from, from that, it's just I find the hardest thing about this current situation that we're all in, the continuing uncertainty of it and the, the clear display of ineptitude. and Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. It's I imagine exactly the same, if not even worse, your side. But it just seems like nobody knows what the hell they're doing, do they? No, you know, it, it, with, with sometimes it takes something this extreme to happen when you really actually look at the problem you've been living with for a long time, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, this is when you find out, and we're finding out. Where are you based? Where's home? Uh, I, I'm in San Francisco. Right, right. And so, so we've had about a month and a half of fires here, which has been really fun. Yeah, we had a couple of days. I don't know if you knew about this, but uh, 
the sun didn't come out one <laughs> one day. It was dark the entire day. It was like nighttime, but orange. Wow. Like very post-apocalyptic. Absolutely. I don't know. There's pictures on the net. I, you should check them out. That's exactly what it was like. I saw like the kind of orange skyline um, because it just, I mean, it swept over all through California, isn't it? It did. And it's been going. And there's still fires going even from like two months ago. They're still going. It's just massive. It's insane. And San Francisco has been pretty much, uh, you know, spared from that, though, you know, you can drive 20 miles and it's pretty bad. Who have you been in lockdown and quarantine with? Who's been keeping you company this year? Just, just my wife. Just the pair of you. Well, that's that's, that's better that's than that's it. better than solo. I've been solo Absolutely. for a lot of mine, and it's been oh really? It's oh, been a journey. Sure. That, that's <laughs> crazy. Yeah. Yeah. You been taking any kind of meditation or anything like that? Or, <laughs> mind exercises. I mean, I wrote a book, which was cool. So that that kind of kept me preoccupied and um, distracted with something positive and productive for a large that's chunk good. of it. But there's certainly been like waves of of madness and yeah you kind right. of go through it all because there's there's nowhere to run or hide so you you're really addressed in, in in the same way you were saying a moment ago about how as countries we're being forced to deal with a lot of these perhaps realities that have been in place for a while on a personal level i think you're left with just only yourself and your thoughts for company and yes. in the process of that of course you you end up inevitably going back through the past and thinking right. about the things that you've done and the things you should sure. have done differently especially when writing right. a book and going into yourself anyway have you been have you been doing much writing yourself have you been being creative or what have you been up to uh, to pass the you time know, it's really strange i mean we have this election thing going here that's been really unpleasant for pretty much everybody yep and uh there's something about, if I'm talking musically speaking, you know, I always enjoyed playing. That's why I like to do it. And, you know, when you take this kind of pleasure out of things, it's, it's, it's harder. It's actually hard. I have been writing, but not like with the enthusiasm that I, that I had in the past. Um, when was the last time uh, you jammed with anyone? You know, I did. Uh, I have a, made a makeshift studio at home, so I have been collaborating with people on stuff. Nice. Doing like, and doing remixes and stuff like that. So, that's been pretty cool. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's not a lot of fun, you know, not definitely not a lot of fun. And, you know, it's really weird is we have this thing on my block where we have every every Saturday, all the neighbors come out and do a happy hour. where We kind of stand outside on our steps and drink. Right. Nice. And uh, yeah, my, my, cool. my road was doing that. Yeah, <laughs> it's a great thing. You know, <laughs> I mean, we get to know each other a lot better. I mean, because we all live on the same block. Right. Yeah. And we've been doing this for about, you know, six months now. And um I'm starting to notice, you know, with the lockdown that I'm less inclined to actually talk to people. <laughs> I don't listen as well as I used to because <laughs> I'm, I'm used to hearing myself. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's yeah. funny. I did exactly the same thing on my street. We'd have like quite a big space out on the sort of shared front drive area. And because pubs mm -hmm. were shut and I was certainly, you know, in, in need of any kind of social activity because I'd been, right. you know, with my own right. own company for so long. So we started doing that every Friday night. And it was actually the first time I've since left that place. Now I've moved out of London. I had to get out. But it was I was in that flat for a year and that whole time before lockdown i'd never spoken to a single neighbor once and then throughout that process we came on first name terms with a lot of them and 
you know, f- cool. formed legitimate relationships. And I did see That's a cool. lot of positives, which I'm sure you did too at the very start. And it Absolutely. did, it continued for a while of like people really chipping in and getting into that idea of community and we're in this together. Right. And so then, you were in London then, right? And I was in London. in London for a while. Yeah, I was in London. So, you know, that became a very stressful place to live before this thing hit anyway, right? Yeah. And here as well, I mean, San Francisco is, you know, Silicon Valley. I mean, it got very expensive for people to live here and people were working hard and, you know, coming up empty. And, and this thing actually was a relief to a lot of people. Did you grow up in San Fran, Billy, or did you move out there no. when you started Faith No More? Yeah, yeah. I, I grew up actually in Southern California, in L.A., but uh, moved up here when I was 18, so that was 40-something years ago. And so you were in L.A. what, kind of like, are you, are you old enough to remember the late 60s at all, or is it more 70s was I when you were remember. kicking it? No, I remember the late 60s, I do, because uh, I lived in Hollywood, so kids in my class, you know, I'd go play at their houses or whatever, and they lived off the Sunset Strip, so... We would drive by the Whiskey A Go Go and see all the hippies in the streets and all that kind of stuff. Man, I can uh, only, I yeah. can only imagine the sights, the smells that you would see down that road in that time period. It must have been an absolute like kaleidoscope smorgasbord of freaks and beautiful people and counterculture. It was in in a very California way too. Like yeah, you know there was you know people driving you know dirt bikes without helmets and you know it was a whole there's a whole cultural thing. You know, people still worked on their cars out there. I mean, there was the era of the muscle car. Yeah, I remember it. It's funny because it's like a movie, but I remember it. Did you see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? And did Tarantino do a good job of invoking that time? So all my friends who I've known from that era, I've reconnected thanks to Facebook, right? They, they found me from like that I knew when I was like six, seven years old. Right. And uh, so I've been talking to them for a couple of years, and they've all seen it. I haven't seen it yet, but they've all said, you have to see it. They, they, they totally got it. Yeah, you got I, the vibe. I heard that because, I mean, I, I obviously aren't really familiar with, with those streets in that time period, but I've since been there a lot of the time. And he's managed to put in, like, Frank and Musso and the Frolic Room and, and any of those places that, that were there then are all in the movie. Right. And you're like, whoa. Cool. And you grew up, am I right in thinking this? Did you go to school with Kevin Kerslake or at least grow up in like I the same did. neighborhood as him? So Kevin, I met yeah, a few years ago. What a sweet man he is. Oh, he's great. He, yeah, he's uh, two years older than me. He used to drive me to school. <laughs> no, so that, you were really yeah, good his buds. His brother was my age. What? You were really good buds. Uh, yeah, our parents went to high school together, if you could, you know, so we, it goes pretty close. Wow. Even though I haven't seen Kevin in 20 years, but. I, I can say that Chris Lakes, you know, my, my father died two years ago and his dad came to my father's funeral, you know, so we're fairly close. For me, he sort of single-handedly invented that kind of alternative rock MTV look. Like all of those bands and all of those videos that you think from that time, like a lot of them were made by him. Which one of yours did he do? Was it Midlife Crisis? Midlife Crisis, yeah. yeah. I think he did another one as well, um, though I can't remember which one it was. And so um, yeah. you and Roddy also were like childhood neighborhood friends, right? Right. Since 10 years old, yeah. 10. That's amazing. And are you still, yeah. I know you're bandmates, but are you still close? Do you still feel like you haven't had enough of each other yet? <laughs> you know, I like connecting with him outside of the band, more like as the guy I know from back then than, than being a bandmate. I love it. Uh, because there's, we have, there's, you know, the thing about a band is... Uh, 
you know, you get defined by something like this. I mean, we had a little bit of success. So people kind of think of me and, and I'm kind of think of myself because that's how people refer to me as the guy in that band. And, you know, the cool thing about knowing Roddy as long as I have is like we were totally, we see each other from a completely different experience, you know, from sitting in Catholic school with nuns stuff wearing uniforms, you know, totally different. And that's actually probably closer to really who we are as people than just these guys in a band together. How was going to, did you have uh, Catholic parents? Did you grow up in a religious home as we well? We did. Y- yeah, yep, yep. I'm sorry to say I did. Or how does that shape your, your, your young mind as you're beginning to form your own <laughs> opinions and, and, you know, figure out your relationship to the world around you? What, what role did religion I mean, I, play in your young adult life? As you were I, getting out I, of school and I stuff. I mean, it was very strict. It was very, there's a lot of agendas with, with, with nuns, a lot of repression going on. And, and they kind of ran the school kind of like a, more along the prison system. So mm-hmm. really it was all about lashing out to me. It was all about, you know, getting even and, and being subversive and finding groups of uh, students and doing ways that, you know, to hit back. So it kind of gave me, and, and, and in a way to my detriment, it, it made me very contrary to just about everything. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, it took me a while to work that out. You know that I It's just um, when you have an experience like that so young, you know, it shapes how you view the world in a way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think anything that happens to you between a certain age, whether good or bad, it's definitely going to just define your engagement with the world around you and your view on the world. It will, though. You you can revisit it because obviously there's a lot of unconscious behavior that comes with that and. You know, I think that, you know, it's always behooves someone to get older to see what, you know, unconscious things motivate them so they can kind of, you know, control that rather than be controlled by it. So Amen. It, it is true. It, it does shape how I see the world. I can go there in, in, a, in a second. But uh, I can say that I definitely don't have that, you know, I'm not I'm not with that, you know, reaction reaction mode that I used to be. That's for sure. <laughs> Thank God. That was what it was originally like, though, was it? Was it a bit like, ah, reaction? Oh. Yeah, pretty much. It's like, I'm going to get them back, you know? <laughs> I'm going to get them back for what they did to me. <laughs> yeah. That's that classic and, you know, kind of angry teenage mentality as well, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and all this, you know, you know, the hype, you know, hypocritical politicians, like things like, like Donald Trump, for example, really kind of gets me on that Catholic school level because he's that authoritarian asshole who's ignorant, who's imposing his will on people. And it's like, that to me is like, just on a very personal level with my experience, it's like that that doesn't fly. It doesn't work. Were you, Go fuck yourself. Were you a punk rock fan as a kid? Like were you were you into that whole germs, X, Black Flag, that movement? Absolutely was. And I went to all of those shows. Yes. Um so I was uh you know, I, I learned how to play bass when I was like thirteen and uh the you know, the bands at the time that you know, if you want to be a musician, a bass player, you know, you listen to prog rock basically, right? It was yes, it was King Crimson you know, the players, the technical players. And I was just learning. So these guys were way above my skill set. And I was like, it was kind of demoralizing. I just wanted to play in a band. And when punk rock happened, it completely clicked for me because I could be as as bad of a bass player as I was and still put a band together and play gigs. Who were the bands for you that most, you know, I guess either inspired you as a musician or really just set, you know, it set a light in you that desire to get a group of guys together and start playing your own shows? Uh, I was playing with, you know, I mean, there's bands like Beatles and stuff like that, right, when I was learning. But Sex Pistols was a big one, real big one. 
Love it. Because it was powerful. It was aggressive. It was everything. You know, back of my Catholic school brain, it appealed to that very well. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and it was just like, it was just, it was hard. And it was harder than everything else, you know. Uh, and the whole world came with that. It was a whole, you know, it was a whole way of thinking. It was, you know, if you saw somebody walking down the street with a, you know, say a, like a, a button, a Sex Pistols button on, you know, just a little button. All of a sudden, this is somebody who's kind of like in the underground, you know. Yeah, He's kind of like a, you know what I mean. He's a it cell, makes it easy you know? to spot mate, your you know? fellow tribesmen, doesn't it? Exactly. That's right. That's right. And we had this thing where you know, back so you know, late seventies, you know, I was getting into it. I was you know sixteen, seventeen years old, you know, coloring my hair and you know, doing all that shit. And uh, you know, we had redneck problems of guys in pickup trucks are going around to beat people like me, and that you know that kind of persecution. I, I kind of you know I kind of that off of that <laughs> I like I kinda, that you know there's something about you know you're really kind of sticking up yourself like if people want to kill you for what you're doing you must be doing something right right yeah I love that yeah you're like oh I know I'm onto something here because this is provoking such a negative reaction Absolutely. in them like why is this so uh you know unsettling and, exactly. and disturbing to them it must be exciting yep did yep, you always um, have the musical connection with Roddy? Was he on that same trip with you, or was he going down a different musical path? Uh, we went back and forth. I mean, you know, we're talking like, whew, since we were 10, I'm 57 now. What is that, 47 years? We've had our, in our teen years, we kind of came back. But we, we had very, in the beginning, we had very close taste because uh, we were, he, he always kind of was pretty adventurous musically. There was a record store on our street. Uh, it's called Larchmont. It's a street in L.A. And the, the, the record store guy, I don't know how, but he kind of turned us on to stuff like Sparks. Oh, wow. And we didn't know what the fuck that was. <laughs> yeah, ma- imagine. Some guy that looks like ten. Hitler, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, really, we were about 11, 12 years old. Yeah, that's going to blow and, your mind. Uh, but Roddy was, you know, playing piano. He was taking piano lessons. So there was a little bit of a connection there. And, we totally got into that. Uh, so there was a lot of adventure stuff. And then high school happened. I kind of got into the punk thing. He didn't really. Uh, but we, when I moved to San Francisco, he moved to San Francisco. And we were about 18 then. And then we kind of got back in sync again. It, when you got to San Francisco, what year did you arrive there? Uh, 1981. So is thrash the thing there? Is that what's the most dominant sort of musical movement at that time with Metallica and Exodus? Or what was going on in the Bay Area musically that sort of seemed to be the dominant scene at that point? Thrash, thrash was happening in the East Bay around, I would say, there was a place called the Record Vault on Polk Street. There was a metal store, but San Francisco was never really like a metal town. Uh, but Was, that's, was, it, was it still the sort of like hippie 82? town? Was it still the hangover from that? <clears throat> yes, because 1981 was only 10 years after 1971. Yeah. So there were still, I mean, you know, you could say they were homeless people, but they were actually hippies on, you know, perpetual acid trips. There was a lot of that. And a lot of kids that I knew and a lot of punks in the scene, like their parents were hippies. And, you know, these kids took acid at very early ages, for example. Like, so that culture was very, very still here. It was still present. Were you inspired or attracted to that? to the hippie, psychedelic, mind-expansive, Timothy Leary journeys? Did you go down that avenue for a a time? I did in a real weird way. Like, L.A., not at all. Uh, And I hated hippies. And uh, I came up here, and 
You know, here's the thing about L.A. and San Francisco. They're really like two different countries. Uh, yeah, I where, can imagine. You know, there's a punk scene in L.A. And, you know, from like my years of, you know, 17 to 18 years old, you know, I went to a million gigs. And I don't think I ever talked about books or movies or politics with anybody. You know, it was all really kind of like, I don't know. I don't know what it was. But it, we talked about everything else. You know, talk about getting wasted or stuff like that. But. I came to San Francisco, all of a sudden people went to see films, you know, and they read books. And, and the hippie thing, uh, the mind expansion thing kind of actually came from that, where, you know, in this city, because they had a, a psychedelic, you know, experience here, you could actually take acid in San Francisco and you could walk around and you wouldn't have to be paranoid about getting arrested because it just, it wasn't a big deal. Where L.A., if you're smoking a joint, you know, you were scared to death of like a highway patrol or a sheriff catching you. Yep. It was very, very aggressive. Really different culture. And I guess, um, obviously, San Francisco would have had at that point in time, especially crime and poverty and all those things. But was it less dangerous as well? Or was it, did it still have the danger element? Just perhaps it was a bit more liberal and, and laxed in that legal Ooh. Sense. I think LA was always more dangerous. I think it was always more of a pressure cooker. Yeah. But I would say the economy here was much more depressed up here. Um, so it was, it was. There was really nothing going on in San Francisco, like economically. It was, it was dead. Uh, you know, so you got the great things like probably, you know, some ways a, a Brixton might have been like. Yeah. You could just put on a club, and the cops didn't really care what you did as long as you weren't killing each other, right? <laughs> and. Uh, L.A. was always a little more aggressive and controlled. What's San Francisco like now? Like a, just a completely unrecognizable city from the one you moved to in 1981. It is. And I live on the same block since, I mean, really in the same neighborhood. I've been here since about 84. Um, it looks the same in some ways. But, uh, yeah, I think the majority of people have probably moved here in the past 10 years. And they came for work. And there was, a, you know, there's a lot of tech work, obviously. Things got very expensive. A lot of my friends I'd known from here have all kind of moved out. So has it changed from an artist community to a, a more, uh, what's the word, like um, when you start a business from nothing and flip it quick, what are they called? Oh, you Startup like, uh, company stuff. Startup company. That's all startup. That's yeah. all it is. Yeah. It's, it's all that. Uh, the, 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 the art itself, I mean, we got this horrible thing. This, this might have happened in London where, you know, People, you know, want to mo live in the city. They're working in Silicon Valley. They want to live in San Francisco where all the good restaurants and, you know, the culture is. You know, they get a place near, you know, the club where there's bands playing so that they can, you know, meet their future husband or wife, you know. Sure. They meet them. They have a kid. And then they want to close the club down because, you know, they can't sleep at night. Yeah. So we've had a lot of, like, Recording studios closing, clubs closing, live music was really, before this pandemic hit, it was already pretty serious jeopardy. Yeah, and I wonder with, with what's happened, how many, you know, venues will, will last, you know, and, and will return. It's really, it's really quite worrying to think about. The only thing that gives me, and we won't go too much into the COVID because yeah. we don't want to spend the whole day yeah. talking about that, but the only thing that gives me hope about it is I think sometimes new things just have to like start from scratch change is the only constant in life right and i feel like sometimes maybe you do just need to wipe out the playing field and people need to just get together in small community based you know spaces or whatever and 
kind of start again, rebuild. I don't know whether that's like a a dream that's naive, but I feel like it'll always happen, right? There'll always be people that want to get together with like-minded people and make cool stuff, and that will happen regardless. I think there's there's better times and worse times, but it's also how you how you the lens you view it in because. You know, if there's always too much of one thing, there's always, uh, you know, water. It always finds its, you know, lower spot where there's a, where there's a vacuum and it goes to that. I think that there is something, there is always a correction mechanism. Uh, you know, I think with our generation, you know, we might, but, but people, you know, a lot younger than us are doing might not seem very attractive and they might not make much sense. But, you know, in a lot of ways, what they're doing is finding the, the holes that we kind of left behind as well. Yeah, which is what you guys would have done, you know, with the holes that were left behind by the generation before with that kind of failure of the the psychedelic 60s revolution, right? Absolutely that. Totally. Totally. How do you meet uh, Mike Borden and um, Chuck? And how, uh, yeah, and how do, uh, and um, I guess like Jim Martin as well, are you all in San Francisco at that time at the same clubs, at the same venues? How does the five piece that was the sort of... no. We care a lot. Lineup come together. We were all really different people. Uh, this is this the, 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 the kind of comic tragedy of Tatum Moore's. We were probably never should have met each other. Uh, but I <laughs> and think certainly not stayed together. We so like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But the fact that we did probably created something that we couldn't have done on our own as individuals. So, you know, I think it speaks for itself. It's just that you know it wasn't an easy process, but. Chuck, I knew, uh, he was a keyboard player in a band, but before I'd moved to San Francisco, he was in LA. And my first band I ever played in, Chuck was in the band. I think I met him when I was like 15. And uh, he wasn't a singer. He never, never sang. The the reason he sang was because Roddy, Mike Borden, and I were doing this Faith No More stuff um, where we were changing different singers. And we had a gig in LA. We just booked the gig and we didn't have a singer. And he was just hanging out. We just told him to come up on the microphone and start screaming, and he did. Amazing. And he liked it, so we asked him to do it again, you know, and that's pretty much how it started. So you didn't have um, a guitar player at that point, or, or what was going on? We we didn't have one for that gig. Um, we, I mean, at the beginning, you know, okay, we're 18 years old, or 19 maybe now, and we had this ambitious project that every gig was going to be completely different music with a different singer, and a different guitar player, and, you know, we were kind of... Amazing. That's where we started. Well, that was that time, wasn't um, it, right? You had bands like Jane's I Addiction doing, no doing similar crazy stuff. Right. and I mean, we weren't building a career, like, let's put it that way. <laughs> we were just making performances. And Jim um, was, was old pals with Cliff Burton, right? They were in a band together. Like, was yes. it Agents so Borden, of Misfortune? Yeah, I met Borden from a record store. When I moved to San Francisco, I put an ad on a record store uh, looking for a band because that's the first thing I wanted to do when I got here. And uh, he was the guy playing with the guys who responded to my ad. Um, So I met him that way. Now, he started playing drums with Cliff Burton. Uh, They went to school together, and Jim Martin was in that that crew. So it was Borden, Cliff, and Jim. Uh, They left on very, very bad terms. It's still... Like, uh, it's still up for t- t- discussion on who quit and who left and who got fired. <laughs> but needless to say, when we were looking for new guitar players, we were trying different guitar players all the time. There was something that was missing that we wanted that we weren't getting. And there was like this kind of really heaviness. We wanted a little more power. Yeah. And, um, and Mike was like, 
I know this guy, Jim, he's an asshole, but he can do it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was it. The rest is history. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. So that kind of, uh, as you say, there's a real mix of different personalities. That creative tension was always there, was it? And it fed into the art and made it what it was. But it wasn't the case um, that it was all fun and games. The fun and games were kind of edgy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was... You know, part of the fun was release. Uh, was a release of tension. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Well, I watched. There's this funny documentary on you guys on YouTube. It's not like a, a produced film. It's just it, like three and a half hours of raw footage. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's. <laughs> I don't know. No. It's from the period of uh, the recording of Angel Dust. So it's basically okay. just a guy with a video camera just in the studio with you all, and then there's a bunch of interviews afterwards, and they're interviewing Jim, and he's just so pissed off. He's like, "They've left me." No space to put any guitars anywhere. They're talking about calling this thing Angel Dust, and I just want to like go on record and say if that's what it's called, it's got nothing to do with me. Fucking disco music, all this stuff. And then I Mike, didn't know that. and then Mike Patton comes in afterwards, and he's like, "Yeah, there's a guy in this band who hates disco, but the rest of us all love it." <laughs> and <laughs> you, you can just see, and he's like, "We're gonna like, I probably just put an ad out saying like, Faith No More guitarist needed to replace this guy," and you can just see like it's. It's kind of there on display, just like, as you say, the wind-up. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, Jim was kind of uh, – I actually got along with him really well. He was a really fun guy to hang out with. Um, but he tended to, to dig himself into some holes and and where, where it kind of looked like we kind of dogpiled on him a lot, but – he he he's a smart guy. He gave it as good as he got it, man. Yeah. It was we were all like that with each other. I mean, it was all on. <laughs> Well, it looked like it was a. It looked like it was a fun process. There's another clip where um, you and Roddy are both at like a keyboard, and he's putting on like wave sound effects, and then you're adding like seagull sound effects, and you're just in mm-hmm. hysterics, like having the time of your life, just doing all these silly samples. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if I should watch that or not, but it, it'd probably take me right there. It sounds about right. It's so just 90s and charming. You know when just the video right, footage right. of that cool. era has that look? That's cool. It says play right, in the right, corner right. of the screen. and That's funny. It was a fun watch. What would you consider to be like the kind of the real debut for, for the band? Would you consider it to be Introduce Yourself? Because I, know <clears> I know you'd done a record before that, but it seems like... It just started to fall into place for the first time, obviously with We Care A Lot being that big standout moment on the record. But That's when we went to Slash. Okay, so we did that We Care A Lot. It was a college hit in the States, and we toured, I mean, you know, but the record wasn't available everywhere. But to us, that was really our big thing. We left San Francisco to go on tour. Like, that was huge. Yeah. Uh, then Slash picked us up. It was introduced herself. That really actually did probably open the doors to the world. Yeah, MTV, I think, played a video for the first time. And we were taken seriously, like, where, you know, the label say, who do you want to produce this? And we could, like, actually, you know, make a list. And it was actually possible, you know, really strange and great. And actually, to be honest, Slash were really, really encouraging with us. They kind of got what we were doing, and uh, it was it was great. How many records did you do with them? Uh, we did all of them with them, but... There was a certain point with the real thing where they kind of had a deal with Warner Brothers where, you know, if it got to become more work, they would just pass it on to them. They could do that. So 
we became a reprise, a Warner reprise band, even though technically we'd signed to Slash. And assumedly, because, you know, all those records are so different, assumedly you were given, uh, like, kind of creative control and, and free reign to, to do what you want. Was that the case? Yeah. I, yes. I mean, we knew in the beginning, like, it was this big thing, never go to a major, you know, they're the worst. They're going to kill you. And there was, you know, countless you know, examples of all the people who have been ruined by majors. And we kind of decided, well, you know, we kind of think this thing we have, actually could be heard by a lot of people and we're gonna you know our one of our core things from the beginning is nobody will ever tell us what to do ever i mean that was really i think that that was something that we just kind of had to make sure would never happen if we were going to go down that route and so we were on all the records and all the recordings and all the writing we did we kind of pretty much you know reserve the right to to you know basically approve or not approve it and that's the way we related to our managers. That's the way we related to our label. It was like, this is it. You know, we'll work with you to a point, but, you know, this is what, what it's going to be. That's a really shrewd move on the part of, you know, young guys starting out. How did you have that foresight? Was it advice that you'd been passed on or did you just sort of see it for what it was and know that you had to take care of yourself from day one? Well, If I only mean, more bands had that, right? Right. Well, I mean, it's also like, you know, Everybody says majors are bad, you know, and it's like, you, if you want to discover things for yourself, you want to, you want to be able to see them for yourself. Like, I don't want to believe all majors are bad because majors are bad, you know, I wanted to see how, and I wanted to see if we do these safeguards, can they be bad or is there some way we can kind of utilize them like a tool? And, um, you know, it's, it's tough to say that we were completely successful because it's a huge, it was a huge industry with a lot of facets we could have never seen coming. Uh, but I think somehow our core at our core, I think we, our intuition was correct. We didn't have anybody really advising us that much. And I, the more successful we got, the harder it got because nobody really wants to give you advice for longevity. I noticed, um, or what's good for yourself. What they want to do is maximize what they have now because yeah. especially a band like ours that was hard to define anyway, um, how long can the shelf life possibly be, right? So all these people who are supporters actually didn't really see much longer than three or four years out of us. I did, they never told us that. Uh, but in all of their advice, it was probably things that were counter to what would have, you know, in the long term made us a healthier unit. How um, how far into you know the, the story of the band did um, Chuck's behavior start to become a little bit erratic and, and unpredictable and did he it was become always an erratic and unpredictable guy since I've known him right always but and that's what I loved about him um, but when he became our singer and our <laughs> face to the world yeah it mattered right and that's so he was that was kind of built in his nature to be that way. Um, when he was on, he was hilarious, but, uh, you know, it was really hard to get things done. It was really hard to make plans because they were constantly getting sabotaged. And was and there, that was just from the beginning. It was always like that. Was there one moment or just like a few, a buildup where I guess like you, Roddy, Mike, Jim, sort of had to look at each other and say like, well, if we are going to continue, maybe we need to have a rethink here. We had a few of them and not everybody was always on board. Um, you know, getting into the psychology of it, I would say 
we all kind of had, you know, it's like a family dynamic. Everybody kind of has their strengths and weaknesses they put into this unit thing. I think Roddy was probably the the one who keeps the glue that kind of keeps people together in a way. Uh, and so even dysfunction, like, I think Roddy kind of felt was worth keeping because it kept the family together. And that, I, I think that in a way that kind of made things a little bit worse. There was a time when, when we, for sure, it had to be done. There were a couple times. We had a gig with Public Image, like, uh, actually, there's a, there's a big one. Uh, the first time when we signed the Slash, our first gig that we did was a club in L.A. called The Lingerie. And um, everybody came. They just pulled all the media. Like, we got this great band and doing this great stuff. Like, it's a, you know, it's, it's really different, you know. And we were, this was, this was it, right? And um, Chuck just was drunk out of his mind. Uh, he fell asleep on one song. And basically. On, on stage mid-set. Yeah, on stage. Yeah. Where it took about two years of touring to get the music media to take us seriously again. Like that gig was just the word got out that we were just so shitty. Wow. So yeah. that's tough, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's an industry in a town that talks as well, isn't it? And as you say, like once something like that has, has happened and that news is out there, it's hard to damage control that and reverse. Yeah. And the, I'm only saying this knowing this in retrospect, like I didn't know that at the time, but that's what happened. But we knew he fucked up and everything was just, it got a little chillier. <laughs> Was it nice for you to reconnect? And obviously, I know you got to play with him before he passed, didn't you? Which must have been nice yep. to come full circle. And did that feel like when you got to play together then that you all made peace with the past? Uh, in some ways, it did. I didn't get, I mean, he was really worried about, uh, you know, fucking up, actually. And I was like, not worried about him fucking up. And, and in our in 40 years, we'd never been like that with each other, right? So it was really good to do that. I think that it, I think he knew that he was on his way out. And I think that gig may have meant a lot to him um, more than I probably realized, but it was really good. I think a lot of people that came to that show were people that knew both of us before there was a faith no more. So it was a really cool grounding thing to do. And, and was it just a case and it's okay if you don't want to get into it, but was it just a case of no. like the lifestyle catching up with him? Absolutely that. Yeah. Yep. It's sad, isn't it? It's hard to age doing that, you know? Yeah. It gets harder and harder. How do you discover young Patton? How does he enter the fold? He, uh, he played a gig up in Northern California. Chuck was in the band and somebody gave us a cassette tape. I think it was Trey in the band. And, uh, it was metal. It was pretty metal. And I, I wasn't that interested. It didn't really, grabbed me but jim martin loved it and was playing it on the bus all the time or in the van all the time and um when the thing with chuck just wasn't working out jim was just like mr bungle mr bungle get the guy from mr bungle and i i was just like uh oh man it's gonna be some dude to hang out with jim and drink beer you know and like some metal dude yeah that's the last thing i want to deal with <laughs> and uh <laughs> and then mike came and it was like completely the opposite of that and jim was actually a little bummed like right mike had never even been in a bar before like he was a kid man 
he was a kid. He seems like yeah, he's about, about 10 years older than the rest of the, is, is, uh, Sorry, younger. Is he about 10 years younger, younger than you guys? Yeah, 10 years younger. Yeah, well, I was about 27, 28. He was about 19, 20. Yeah. That's yeah. wild. So he would have been, because on this documentary I was telling you about, he seems like so much younger than you guys then because he's just so, oh, so young, so fresh-faced. Totally. I mean, you know, in some ways, yeah, it was a real strange thing. I mean, bringing him into our world because we kind of had, we were coming from kind of from a scene. We've been touring, we've been making records, our friends we were all punks and stuff. And, you know, you bring this kid in there and, and everybody's like, why are you doing that? And, uh, the weirdest thing is we went, you know, we tried out like probably 15 people, you know, with, with the music we were writing and people didn't really seem to get it. I don't know why. Our, to me, our music's really simple, but people weren't grabbing it. And, and Mike just grabbed it the second he heard it. He just, it just was very natural to him. And it's like, you know, if you look at it from a musical point of view, this is the right guy. Well, I was reading, tell me whether or not this is true. Obviously, you've done all the music pretty much for The Real Thing. That was kind of almost all done, if not all done. Um, did Mike write all the lyrics for the album in a period of about two weeks over your music? Pretty much, yep, very quick. He didn't I mean, know anybody in San Francisco. He was living in a room in Borden's house, and, and I think he just had nothing to do but write, and he did. And he, 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 he cranked all that out. At the age of 19, 20, to churn out songs like that, in that you know speed of time is really right. really is quite astounding isn't it did you see as soon as he started presenting his ideas to you like the talent in him right away were you like oh god yeah this is the kid i did i when i knew is because i had a little four track and what we would do is we'd get like a you know two microphones and record a song in the rehearsal room and then you know he could practice his vocals over that you know on my four track come over to my house and he had some ideas for stuff and it's like i remember turning the four track on and he just like sang and I was like oh my god it already sounds like a finished song like what the fuck it was it was like oh my god moment it was it was very interesting that you don't have that very often I haven't no well I mean it's it's magic I think when moments like that happen yeah. and, and to see it, I knew un it unfold when I heard it on the shitty recording on the shitty four track I knew it already I already heard what it was what where where it was going to go and what it was going to do what did you think of, just, of the topics he was delving into as well? Because he goes to some quite, <laughs> some very funny and also some pretty dark places as well. Did you have to kind of like rein him in at any point or did you let him just let him just do his thing? Oh yeah, completely let him do his thing. I mean, we were coming from pretty, some pretty dark places ourselves. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think when he came over to, to try out for the band, I mean, I lived in an old abandoned animal hospital and it was like just, like holes in the walls and John Waters was like playing on the TV, like at full blast, <laughs> like, you know, I don't know what he thought about that. Right. Uh, but I wasn't anyone to, you know, give him any moral uh, guidance. That's for sure. <laughs> I think falling to pieces off that album is the one for me. Whenever I'm DJing out, that's always my, my go-to tune, but just really, I love it. I wow. love, yeah, that's my, that's my jam huh. from that album. It's just, I, I don't know what it is. I think it's just, I mean, everything, it's, it's everything. It's everything about it at once just hits the spot for me. Epic was the one though, right? That was like, that was the kind of huge, big song. Did that change the course of, of the band's career? Would you say the success of that song and the video? And that stuff didn't come until a year and a half after the album had come out. So. Right. We, we toured that thing for a year and a half before anybody really cared about that song or that album. 
So when it did happen, it was pretty defining, but we were already pretty tired. So when they so sort of s- said you really... took some time off after the real thing, you didn't really take time off. It's just that it took the world t- time to catch up with you guys. Yeah. That's kind of yeah. the way it went down. I mean, the real the deal, I mean, like the management said, hey, guys, it's working. We got it going. You know, the tour is ending. Uh, you guys got to get back in and start writing again. And we've been touring for about probably on and off for 18 months. You know, and, and not really good touring because we weren't making a lot of money. You know, half, more than half of that was just in the van. Yeah. So... You know, the last thing we wanted to do was just get on the treadmill. I mean, you know, and yeah, that was a tough time. It was a tough time because we had to work. We needed it, but it, I don't know if it was really that healthy for us. Is there a story that you could share <laughs> regarding Bjork and a fish? <laughs> oh, that's just completely made up. I don't even know where that came from. Is it really? It was some fishmonger. Yeah, it was some dude, some animal trainer. And we did it in London and, uh, we wanted a fish. We wanted a fish gasping for air. That was pretty much, that was actually, I think it was, that was my idea, actually. Like, they had all these ideas, like, what do you want to do for the video? And and I was like, they could just take a fish, take it out of water, make a grass rare for a few minutes, and just do it in slow motion. That's all I, that's my, that's my input. And that's for and, the piano uh, outro at the end, right? Yeah, yeah. pretty much. And, um, you know, it wasn't anything cruel to the fish because it really was only really out for like five seconds. But um, we had some guy who came from some aquarium in London who was like an animal keeper for films and uh, just came in with his fish. That's brilliant. Because there's a quote on, on record somewhere from Bjork saying, I couldn't say either way, but all I could say is if I'd have just taken my fish home like I was supposed to. Then, <laughs> so she she obviously <laughs> enjoyed playing answer. along with it as well. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> Angel Dust. Uh, I'd love to talk to you about that one. That's the kind of yep. the period which I saw in this documentary. And for me, that was the record which kind of turned me on to adult music, I would say. Like when I was a kid growing up discovering punk and metal and rock and all of those amazing genres that I still love to this day. Here comes this thing with what looks like a a heron, a bird on the cover. Um, And it was just so atmospheric and cinematic and foreboding and, and provocative and challenging for my mind at that time to try and process and comprehend. And everything about it, I think, just really encapsulated what was so special about your band, the combination of kind of aggression and beauty and... I just love that album so much and it's you know still such an amazing album whenever you put it on it just stands the test of time so well um going into the studio to make that one Mike had taken some time off to do Mr Bungle is that right He did So had that kind and of reset was, the sort of he was the plate as it were Go ahead go ahead reset we were saying really reset like him going off to do that, did that sort of give him the chance to kind of reset his creative brain? So did he come back in, obviously, as an older guy, done often, you know, done his own thing? Um, did he kind of come in like a new reinvigorated artist ready to work with you all together on the music for that one? I don't know. He didn't tell us. <laughs> we just, with Mike, it's what you get is what you get. Right. And he didn't, <laughs> he, he was never much of a guy who explained it. So... He was he yeah, was more hands on involved with the music though, right? He he took on a bit more of a role. He was more involved with the music. He was, and we, you know, we were, you know, after touring the real thing and playing those songs for a year and a half. I mean, some things, you know, like I would say Jim and maybe even Borden probably 
that was a very conventional record for us. And they probably might have wanted to go more in that way. And where I was kind of like, okay, everybody's watching us. Everybody's kind of hearing, you know, they want to hear what we're doing now finally with this weird music. Let's really take it somewhere now that people's ears are open. So that was kind of my point. And Roddy was pretty much along with that too. He was up for that. Um, and Mike Patton was as well. But, you know, we were, it started becoming a little bit of this kind of energy and like we weren't quite all sure that that's where we wanted to go. And as you saw in that video, you know, Jim wasn't pretty down with it at all. <laughs> to, to say the least. <laughs> yeah. And yep. that, that was no secret then. Uh, was it a fun process for you from a, a writing and a producing point of view? Like, because you come across like the real like science lab wizard type dude like in all the clips that you're in you're there at the board and you just like you I seem was, like you're running from instrument to instrument just having the time of your life i'm always yeah i was always involved like even whatever producers we have we always did pre-production on our own and i was always really deeply into that i was i think a lot of bass players get into the recording aspect of things for some reason i'm not sure why but um i was one of those guys and so i was always in the studio no matter what anybody was doing and Having a place like Coast Recorders uh, where we had a budget where we could be there for two months to make a record. I mean, I wanted to be there and learn everything I could and be there the whole step of the process. Absolutely. And so that obviously was was what went into you kind of starting your label and working as a producer in those intermittent years and kind of exercising those muscles in that time. It came later. I I didn't think about myself like that. I was just doing it because I was into it. Uh, But after, you know, when Faith and More, after the album of the year, and I realized that, like, you know, shit needed to get done. I kind of saw that, you know, over the years of being around all that time, I'd kind of pick some things up and, you know, I should probably continue with that. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You've done some pretty amazing side projects like that 
I think a couple are known about, but the um, the the Shandy's addiction thing sounds super interesting. Was that just like a one off for the Kiss record? Yeah. It wasn't like a touring it band was. or anything. No, Kiss. Uh, we're doing a compilation of a tribute record uh, to themselves. <laughs> of course, <laughs> and of course, right? <laughs> and they wanted other bands to do covers of their songs, and they wanted to call it "Kiss My Ass." And um, so, my manager, our manager at the time, like. We had a little bit of downtime, and he was like, hey, you know, they were managing Rage Against the Machine, too, and they said, uh, hey, uh, so Kiss is doing this thing, and, uh, they, you know, Tom and uh, Brad, are, you know, want to do this cover. You want to play bass on it? I was like, yeah, sure, why not, you know? And I just met him down in L.A. for a day. We banged it out, like, right away. We, we rehearsed it for, like, an hour. We recorded it. That was it. And uh, I guess Tom's old roommate, Maynard, you know, wanted to sing on it. So Tool was kind of just kind of starting then. And uh, he, I picked him up in San Francisco and we went to the studio and he did his vocals in about an hour. And that was really it. Faith against the Tool. It's, it's, an, amazing, <laughs> it's an amazing mix of personalities. It's a really interesting cover as well. Well, you know, the really great thing about it was it, wasn't, it, was, a, it was an amazing mix of personalities back then before we were personalities. So we were actually just being who we were, doing what we did. And there's, I think that that was really why it came and went as easily as it was. I wonder if we, you know, if we didn't know each other, we had to do this now, knowing who each other were, I bet it would be a lot more difficult. Yeah, there's something to be said for just the purity and the, the excitement when experience hasn't totally. jaded you, right? You're just hungry and totally. excited and ready it to go. It's more harder to do. Yep, yep. It seems weird to me that Maynard and Tom Morello would live together, being the two completely different figures that they are now. That's a trip. But he's obviously on their first record as well, isn't he? And actually, you know, Maynard is actually, he's a pretty funny guy. I mean, I, I like him. I, don't, I can't say I really know him, like, that I've spent a lot of time with him, but the time I have spent with him, I've really enjoyed him. I imagine him and Mike would be an interesting pairing. You know, I would, thought, I would have thought so too, but I, I guess... I, I can't. I think they like each other, but I don't think they click the way I would have thought they would have. No, two no. two similar I, I perhaps. Would have the same. <laughs> two immovable yeah, objects. Like <laughs> you know, Maynard is really part of his thing is his dryness, his humor. Yeah, that gets lost on a lot of people. Yeah, he's a big comedy guy, he's isn't he? Extremely dry. Oh my god! How was the? Um, the crazy tour that you did with Guns N' Roses and Metallica, they said it would never happen tour. How was that for you guys? How did you go over with the crowds as well? Crowds didn't really care for us one way or another. I think it's great that the bands were supporting us, you know. GNR were totally... I mean, they really helped us, actually. I don't think, you know, if they didn't say we were cool, I think a lot of people probably wouldn't have, you know, made the extra effort to listen to our music the way they did. And so, you know, they really did help us, but... um by the time we hooked up with them when we were touring they were this hugest band in the world and there was just like so much security there was so much like them going on late there was so much like non-spontaneity in that environment and we did it for about six months it was really hard on us i i can't say we had really it was tough it was tough and it's, it's, it's tough because they were very supportive of us, but we really, it wasn't very healthy for us. And yeah, I mean, it ultimately broke up that band as well, didn't it? <laughs> well, they were going that direction. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It was headed there, but you know, and that's happening, you know, with this band, with this, this is giant, you know, 
machine running and it's really not healthy at the core, uh, that all filters down. And, you know, we're, we're a little lower down on the, the feeding trough. So by the time it gets to us, there's just a lot of like nervous energy. There's a lot of, there's a lot of just unpleasantness, I should say, general unpleasantness. Um, and even when people are trying to be pleasant, you know, there's just a certain thing that you feel. There's not a lot of joy, if that makes any sense. I imagine it's like uh, if you go and visit your friend at their house and their parents are fighting and you're you're a guest yeah. who's been invited to be there and they're not trying to make you feel unwelcome, but just because of the mood in the house, you feel it and it feeds into you and it kind of ruins your experience. Great analogy. That, that's right. And, and then another thing is, you know, we're doing this tour and, you know, we were playing for like, you know, 25,000 people in a stadium. But, um, you know, people come up to me and, you know, go like, we would play three hours before they would go because it always go on late. And so we, you know, there'd be like, you know, 2000 people out there to see us because why is anybody going to get there early when the band doesn't go on for another three hours? Yeah. So, uh, it's an empty, empty place. And, you know, right the commanders go, how does it feel to be on the greatest, biggest tour in the world? You know? And it was, it was ludicrous. You know, it was, it was like, uh, you know, it's like it's just like suddenly Trump saying, "Yeah, we're leading the world on the coronavirus." You know? Yeah, sure it's you like are. Weird. Nobody does it better than the United States. This is the best response to a coronavirus disease in U.S. history. You know, it's just there's something about it that's just like, "Fuck this." <laughs> How are the Booyah tribe? I I rewatched that music video the other day, and it just made me miss the '90s. I was like, imagine that happening today, like a project that exciting and dangerous, and everybody in it's just like a radical artist at that time. And that video is amazing. so dark and like just cool. It was amazing. It was amazing because we didn't know them. We just kind of thought about them, uh, called them up on the phone. They had they had some studio time because they were making a record. We just showed up. Uh, I didn't even play bass they, they, because they have a bass player. They just said, let's turn on the tape and let's just start jamming. Amazing. And that that's what that was. And it was like on a musical level. I mean, we did this like 40-minute jam and they forgot to hit the record button. <laughs> and that was that was the best. That was fucking amazing. And then it's like, shit, we didn't get that? And then we did it again. And what you got was, was part of that, um, that they edited it up. But, but it was... It was exactly like how it felt in the video and the song. Like we really connected. It was really fantastic. If anybody hasn't seen that, listening to this, it is the anybody got murdered video off the the amazing Judgment Night soundtrack in '94, which was, I guess, was that your first outing without Jim? It was. Jim didn't want to do it. We were going to play with guys. He was like, "Fuck that shit." And so, okay, well, that's it, right there. I'm going to go. Yeah. Well, we were already kind of, you know. You know, hip hop, you know, Jim wasn't into that, you know, so he's like, don't worry about it, Jim. We're just going to go do it anyway. <laughs> and then what happens? And then does he walk? Do you boot? Is it a bit of both? He was walking, but it took a while. It took a couple more years. We were writing King for a Day, I think, when that all transpired. Because, you know, when you get to a certain point when you're a successful group, you know, you just don't walk away from that. You know, you have to you have to make a settlement. Yeah. So that took time. It took negotiation and time, and that's what happened. And at that period, obviously, it was around the death of Kurt, and I know from speaking to Kevin Kerslake that I don't know whether it, he said you as well, but certainly Roddy were like childhood friends of Courtney, and 
and grew up sort of with her. So they were obviously close. Were you close with Courtney as well? Or was it more well, Roddy's I mean, friend? She used to be our singer, right? Yeah, I was reading she this. Sang in our band. So this is, this, is a tr- this is a true bit of Faith No More trivia. Yeah, yeah. For like three or four months, she was a singer. So, wow. Yeah, we were, there was a certain period of time where we were extremely close. Uh, I would say for about a year. And, um, and this, is, be- this is before Chuck. I haven't spoken with her since then. Before should, we, Chuck. Yeah, she was in the band yep. for three months before Chuck. Wow. What's that? Yep. How was that? How was that dynamic? Was she wild? Like she on, the, on the mic? Was she just a, a force? Um, yes, personality-wise. Uh, she was not afraid of anything. Uh, and she engaged the audience. She insulted them. And, she was, and it was fantastic, actually, that part. The part that wasn't so... I don't think that on a musical level we really connected. So that part wasn't so great. So she is obviously going through hell after Kurt's death. I guess is Roddy sort of taking on a bit of that and feeling it as well because he was kind of absent for a lot of the King for a Day sessions, right? He, uh, you know, he went through um, the program around that same time. So he had a couple friends, not just Kurt that, that died, uh, and it was substance related, and he was, you know, trying to get himself off of them himself at that time. So Roddy was having a tough time, and uh, he was pretty detached making King for a Day, which I can, you know, completely understand, but it was it was tough at the time. How tough was that for you? Because obviously not only your close friend, but I guess he was kind of like your main writing partner within the band as well, right? So did that give the, that album a whole different feel when you were creating it? You have to sort of reinvent it as it were, and obviously Jim's um, gone. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's really hard to say. All this stuff is so subjective. I can only think about what I brought into it, but with Jim, you know, kind of what I was talking about earlier, it took a while for us to separate and maybe a year or two, like we knew it was going to happen, but it it was a, it was a very painful, slow process. And I think when it finally did happen, it was like this, for me, it was this breath of fresh air where I just wanted this, like whatever vibe Angel Dust had, I wanted to explode it, you know, yeah. all that, all that technicolor richness and all that stuff, which we liked when we did it. I kind of started thinking about it as kind of being oppressive as well and dark and, and, and those feelings I had while we were touring it. And uh, I wanted something that just felt like an impact and a bomb going off. So that was kind of what I brought into it. I don't know if Roddy felt that way or didn't feel that way. Um, he wasn't really talking much. I don't think he was dealing with stuff that he didn't even know what he was dealing with. Um, but we all, you know, we went to Bearsville in New York to record in Woodstock, which was this incredible studio and had a beautiful piano there. And we still, you know, we still had a lot of creative stuff that came out that was good, even with Roddy. Um, but it was a really different energy. It was kind of like, well, we finally got through this like dysfunctional situation and now we can like, reclaim ourselves. And it didn't really happen the way I was hoping it would. In terms of what, like the response from the fans and no, well, I know that that part I don't even know. I mean, if that did that did if the record did pretty much fall flat, but that wasn't um, that wasn't what I was thinking. It had more to do with you know, wow, we can all connect with each other again. Like all this thing that was really weighing us down, we kind of have risen past that. So now let's get back and do something really creative and good. And not everybody was all in sync, you know. So it was it was hard work. It was, making that record was very hard. It was very difficult and painful. And how about the final one? 
for, from round from round one. It was very difficult and painful too. <laughs> um, yeah, and it, it's funny. And that record, really, of all the ones we did, that got the least reaction, the re- least reception. And not the fact that it's King for Day that got, didn't get such a great reception. But you know, it's funny now. Like a lot of people say, that's their favorite record, and we were really happy. We were really proud of it when it came out, and and, and even on the year we were as well. Um, but it was a different vibe. It was a much sadder vibe, that's for sure. But I would think of all the records we've ever done, I probably connect with that one the most. Which one? Album of the Year? The last one, Album of the Year. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's that song on there. I love it. The I don't think you've ever played it live. The She Loves Me Not. It's like just a loungy, right. really unusual song. But, well, I guess there is no such thing as an unusual Faith No More song. But uh, <laughs> just a really cool like point of difference in, in that record. And uh, Pristina as well. Was that inspired by, did you take a trip out to the, the, the Balklands? It was when yeah. that when that was going on. So, how did that situation over there like impact and affect and inspire, if that's well, the right word, you? You know, when you don't know what you're seeing, you go by what you feel, right? So, I went through. It was in Kosovo, and and the war hadn't kicked off yet, but it was obvious that it was going to. And there's just something you just you just get when you're there that you could never. You can never read about. You can never see on a TV. You just get it, and it's a feeling, right? And you know, I don't think most people knew much about Kosovo because there hadn't been a war there yet, so there was really no reason for anybody to learn about it. Um, and I just kind of wanted to like. It, it was kind of a thing that left an impression that I kind of wanted to make a marker out of. If that makes any sense? Of course. And I wanted to try to get that vibe, and I wanted to try to just like take a snapshot of it. Because there's like. Across your life, there's a few political figures musically that are obviously, you know, huge and larger than life within their fields. Jello being one, and, and Wen Kramer mm-hmm. being another. Mm-hmm. Would you would mm-hmm. you consider Faith No More in any way to be a kind of a, a politically inspired band? Is is it in there, or is that a very I unique would, song for you guys? No, I mean one of the reasons that we have the variety we have is because, uh, you know, politics is also about defining issues, right? Yep. and how you perceive issues and how numbers of people just perceive issues. And, you know, numbers of people that perceive my band, you know, and I, I, I don't like being defined by, you know, defining myself with cheap tricks, and I don't like being defined by other people's cheap tricks. And that's political. That's very much political. I mean, when I see, you know, I when I see how people have perceived my band and I, I see the machine that's created what it's created, and I've also seen how, you know, People see what they want to see. Uh, that applies to, you know, people getting health care. It applies to, you know, the justice system just as much as, you know, who they vote with when they buy their music. I think there's there's a complete connection there. So there's always politics. It wasn't the kind of politics where I would be like, you know, um, taking a political cause and, 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 you know, marching down the street with it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't take politics the way Rage Against the Machine takes politics. I don't think anybody in my band would ever do that. But I think that living in this world and being part of the mass media, you are political. You cannot not be political. I think it's interesting as well because now more than ever, people like to sit on their computers or their phones and sort of rant on the internet and tell people that they've never met before what they think about their right. their art or their lifestyle choices or or whatever and i think in this day and age it's 
important for artists and humans to kind of defy that and fight against that because i hate that so much as you say like kind of trying to put people in boxes and and you know restrict what we're allowed to do as humans i'm not talking about running out and committing crimes i'm talking about being being free and you know living it's our quality of life yeah if if, 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 for example you know they're trying to you know if they're trying to take down the nhs you know it's not just that they're trying to save money you know it's also that they're going to affect people's quality of life you know the way they react to each other because if somebody's sick obviously their quality of life is going to be compromised right and if they can't pay for their medicines, they're going to be compromised. If you are not creating a space where you can express yourself uh, and you are contributing to that space that, that tries to block that from happening, you're creating a worse world for yourself where there's less options, right? Amen. I mean, if people say, take them off in doors, you know, for bands, if, if we did, I would like to think it's because we gave them the possibility they can do whatever they want. I think it's important that that exists in our world yeah and we need it now more than ever i think it's getting it. it's getting more and more like safe and regimented and yeah you have to fight for your quality of life you have to how was hooking up with jello biafra for the axis of evildoers i i love that guy as as an artist as a songwriter i've never had the pleasure of sitting down and talking with him but he seems like he'd be uh, an interesting guy to get to work with great he's great he's he's one of a kind he does, he's amazing in that he writes everything and he doesn't play an instrument. So he sings into a tape recorder. Wow. Well, that's how he does but it. All the parts, he, just vocally. Yeah. Yeah. He's amazing. amazing. He's amazing. And he hears things in my playing that I, I don't even hear. Like he's very, very fine tuned. Um, he was an idol of mine when I was 15, 16 years old. So, you know, it, it meant a lot for me to connect with that. Uh, and yeah, it, you know, he's still in San Francisco playing in a band, you know. He's still being the guy that he was and doing what he does, and he can't do anything else. And there's something really, I, I really respect and admire that. Has he got a sharp mind as well? Is there somebody you can sit down and just have really great, in-depth, engaging, informative, entertaining conversations with? Uh, depends on his mood. <laughs> <laughs> if he doesn't want to, he definitely <laughs> cannot. Love it. <laughs> But no, he's quick. He's definitely quick. And the other hero, an all-time hero, and I guess really like that first political punk band that you know were willing to go to jail for what they believed in, mm-hmm. um, Wayne Kramer. So I got to see you right. guys open up for Alice Cooper in London. Oh, okay. um, I, I want to say it was last year. It seems like it was recent, but this year's thrown my my sense of time exactly out the window. A year ago. Cool. It was also exactly a year. And it was you, Kim, Brendan, and uh, the singer Marcus, yeah. and then you had the Stranglers after you guys. It was an amazing bill. Yeah. How do you um, get the offer, first of all, to go play with, with Wayne in the MC50? And then when you hear the I lineup, knew, did I you just Wayne jump already. in? Right. I knew him, and I liked him immediately. We hit it off when we first met. We went, I met him, I met a friend, a mutual friend for lunch, and Wayne was there. And we just hit it off. And I didn't keep in regular contact with him over the years but like every time i saw him i was like i feel like i just knew him already so i hadn't talked to him probably in a couple years and uh i got a call just like hey bill uh it's wayne hey man what are you up to well i'm doing this tour in about you know a month and the bass player didn't work out so can you do it and it's like shit (laughs) yeah i mean how can i say no to that and that's kind of what happened and i just stayed with the band i mean 
that was amazing. That was an amazing experience. I never knew Brendan before. Uh, and Fugazi were kind of like the East Coast Faith No More in a weird way. Like we yeah, yeah. came up at the same time. We went to, we saw each other's gigs, but we didn't know each other. And, um, and he's awesome, man. He's awesome. And I wish I would have known him earlier. And he was so great to play with. He's a great drummer. It was, it was fucking great. And Kim, I've known since the Soundgarden days. And, you know, Soundgarden, when Faith No More first came to Seattle back in, I don't even know what year that was, late 80s, Soundgarden opened up at the Central Tavern. There was like 20 people there. <laughs> well, the last so time... we go way back. We go way back. The last time I saw Faith No More was the Hyde Park Day, which was just one of the best days ever. Um, oh, that was fun. That was the last time I saw Soundgarden before Chris passed. It was the last time right. I saw Motorhead before Lemmy passed. Um, and what an amazing day. What an amazing bill. Um, and that was your first show back in the UK after how long had it been? It had been a few years or a couple or more? Ooh. Uh, yes, it had been a couple of years actually. And it just came up. I think we got the call about that one off gig and we just took it, but we hadn't played in a while. And you, you dropped a couple of new tracks, didn't you? You played motherfucker and, we did. and, and superhero that day. That's right. Yeah. We had already recorded the album by that point and we hadn't really told anybody about it yet, but we just did it. Yeah. I love that. Cause yeah, you didn't announce it on the day either. You weren't like, this is new material and classic faith. No more way. You just went into them and everybody yeah. was like, I don't know this song. Is it another one of their yeah. covers that I don't know the original of? <laughs> so good. What a great way to debut um, a song like motherfucker as well. Just like with no fanfare, no, no material out. And you just go into a that's song like we, that. Incredible. Yeah. That's kind of how we wanted to do it. And it was cool. <laughs> did you approach Jim about a, a reunion? Did you invite him to be involved or was he just not into it? We did. We did about three times. We bungled the first two. <laughs> but the third one's on him. Uh, yeah, we, we, we left on pretty bad terms uh, and we didn't, we basically the communication kind of stopped. So it had been about maybe almost 20 years since we'd spoken. Wow. We decided to get back together to do these Brixton shows back in the 2009. We, you know, we thought, well, let's get Jim. Let's see if Jim wants to do it. Why not? Can we do it? I don't know. I mean, obviously, the drummer's a little shell shocked because he's been through this twice already, right? Uh, we uh, we all were kind of like, I don't know. You know, if this is gonna be a negative thing, I don't know if anybody wants to do it. We all kind of, you know, we had issues with each other too, you know, to do this and. It was, it was pretty fragile, actually, when we decided to do it. You know, it would have been much easier just to kind of not do it. And Roddy called him, and he was like, "I'll do it. I'll do it. Blah blah blah. No problem. I don't care. This is a totally, completely uh, not an emotional thing for me." You know. And so Roddy's like, "Wow," he says, "I'll do it." And this is, you know, you know, that's great. You know, and somebody said something's that's not right. That's not a right reaction. <laughs> like it doesn't. He's, you know, that's not an honest reaction. That was with somebody, somebody, I don't know who brought it up, but I kind of agreed with that. Like, it's just something like, it doesn't quite feel it. And John was like, who did the last record with us, he was kind of really felt kind of like one of us. And we're like, you know, we know with John, like, there's a certain trust issue there that we'll have and where we can kind of do our gig. And we told him then, we told Jim it wasn't going to work out. And he didn't didn't react well, and that kind of, in a weird way, confirmed that it probably was right that we didn't do that. 
Right. Yeah, it's, it, these are very fragile things, aren't they, ban relationships? You know, I, I'm not even going to point a finger at Jim and say he, he blew that. Or in a weird way, we, we probably shouldn't have approached him if we were that skittish about it. But um, but it, it, it would have been, I don't think it would have worked out very well. I don't think we would have continued and, and, and made another album. Another great album as well. Your first one in 18 years. That must have been a incredibly unique experience there's not many people that can say you know two decades almost go by and then you get back in the room with these these old collaborators and and what sort of emotions come out during that process all of them pretty much pretty much why yeah not all good not all good ones yeah yeah um all of it uh yeah that's the process it's therapy in a weird weird way i think that almost always you're better off having done it than not done it if those things are flying around but it's i can't say it's an easy thing to do had you remained in contact assumedly because your old pals with roddy you two remained friends in that intermission mm-hmm. uh had you had you kept up a relationship with mike well the the two mics not really any of them didn't see any of them for about since the 98 till about 2009 so i don't know how many years that is 11 didn't talk to them much maybe once or twice during that period that includes roddy too i kind of had enough when when album of the year was done i'd had enough so you just go off you're doing the label stuff and producing and doing other bands just like i want to do i want to do creative things that i want to enjoy doing that was kind of my my mindset so i'm just going to seek seek comfort in things that make give me pleasure who was the first person to extend the olive branch of, of friendship or, you know, a business opportunity? <laughs> My manager. Right. <laughs> I, uh, what happened was, um, I, he had gotten married, uh, in Mexico and I was invited to his wedding. So I went down at the airport getting on the plane. Guess what? There's Roddy going down too. So I hadn't really seen him for about, um, I don't know, geez, years. And it was good. I spent the whole weekend, hung out with him, had a great time. And it was like, oh, that's actually really cool, you know? It was, it was, it was a really kind of cool thing. And then after that, he got married. I was out of town. I was out of the country. But those guys all went to his wedding, and they connected, probably in a similar way that I had with Roddy. And, and uh, that's kind of the momentum that kind of got it going. Weddings, bringing people together, you see. I guess that's what they say. <laughs> and are you are you really pleased with that record, Sol Invictus? Like it was such a great continuation, but also reinvention as as the others previously had been as well. Did you feel any um, pressure or fear to follow up on these f- first four records all these years later? Was there any like trepidation or doubt in your mind, or were you just hungry and excited to to get in and try it out? No doubt whatsoever. Uh, I kind of felt with the album of the year that we kind of split up before I really got to kind of speak my musical piece. I felt like I had more to say. And so I always had, I kept writing, you know, even though there was no band, I just kept writing music because I just felt like the word, the the final word hadn't been said. And um, so there was no, there was no fear on that side. What made it a little hard was, we didn't really want to tell anybody we were making a record because, you know, the Faith No More is making a record again, you know, and all this hype. And we kind of just wanted to just keep the volume down and just kind of try to make it a musical connection between ourselves. And uh, so we didn't tell anybody. And what that means is, you know, 
and I'm going to be probably doing a lot of the engineering and stuff myself in the rehearsal room because, you know, we're not booking time even in studios. We're, we're doing this completely on the down low. And I think that was a cool thing to do as far as the, to the soul of the group to, to connect. I think yeah. it was, for me, it made it a little difficult because I became so intimately involved in the process that I, I still hear every mistake on that record. I can't, <laughs> I can't listen to it. Oh, no. I know what you mean. I've, yeah. edi- I've edited a film yeah. and I liken it to that. It's you spend to the point where you begin to just see these wavelengths as like equations and it's not it's not like art anymore it's science and you go so stir crazy and mad and as you say i'll notice like one frame that's off and i I can i can sympathize with that because you're so close to it aren't you the brain will do that it will just get (laughs) as meticulous as it wants to right and so i think it was a great thing we did i'm happy with it i could let it go uh, and I think it did what it needed to do, uh, but I have a hard time listening to it. And and what's next for Faith No More? Or is it very much with a band like that, just we, we let time unfold as it will, and we just sort of roll with, with whatever happens along the way, or do you I, actively make plans at this stage? I'm guilty of anything in the past. I've always been kind of the guy to get the crack the whip and get everybody focused to get on the next thing. Yeah. And to my detriment, I think people kind of have resented me for that, which, you know, rightly so. So uh, I think that what I'm going to do this time is I think when the band wants to do something, they're going to do it. And if they don't, I'm completely comfortable with that. Right. That's cool. got to let it go. So it is yeah. just the future's we'll unwritten. Where that gives us. <laughs> right. <laughs> but if we do do it, if something does come out of it, it will be a, a real natural thing that, that people want to do. And I think that's the only thing we can. That, that's the only way it should happen right now. Yeah, that's beautifully because honest. If it's not like that, there's no fucking point doing it. There's enough noise in the world, really. No, that's that's a great viewpoint to have, and I respect the few bands that do do have that. Though, and they're just like, you know what? If it happens and we want to do it, we will. But we're not just going to do it for the sake of it. Nope. Uh, the big show, though, that was going to be looking like the best show of this year, that's still going to go ahead. Hopefully, next year, right? With System of a Down, Corn Helmet, Russian Circles, and you guys. I saw that lineup and was like, oh, I'm, I'm coming out for that. Um, but, oh, in LA. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't know when. I don't think there's a date set. I guess we'll have to wait and see then, won't we? Next year as I well. Think I mean, anybody knows anything. Yeah. If there's any shows of that size next year, I think we'll all be lucky. Um, and I, I hold out for it, but I don't, you know, I don't expect. It's crazy. You know, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm 57 years old, you know, we're, we're not spring chickens anymore. You know, one of us could get, you know, catch something. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think. I mean, you know, anything can happen in a year, right? I mean, all these bands. I'm sure a big percentage of bands that we've just taken for granted, just tours all the time, not going to exist anymore. I think about that not in regards to Faith No More, but in regards certainly mm-hmm. to bands like the Rolling Stones and Oh, for sure, Aerosmith Absolutely. and and those totally. guys that you just you know you t- you take for granted, as you say, you think, yeah, I'll get to see ACDC again. Hell yeah, they're in the studio at the moment making a new record, but. You know, if it's going to be a, another 12, 18, 24 months before, that is a real, you know. That's, that, that's a lot. A thing I mean, again. two years off when you're, when you're 70 years old is like 10 years off when you're 30 years old. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough to get back into that. Sharon Osborne said uh, in a news article recently, "Aussie will tour in 2022." (laughs) You just, you just, you know, you just, you you just picture Aussie at home like, "Fuck you." (laughs) When can I retire? (laughs) 
<laughs> do you love being on the road though i know you're a big studio guy do you do you love being on the road and playing live shows as well is that a big part of where you're most you know happy and at home i can i can uh my professionalism kind of gets to me a little bit like uh to where it's so stupid but my you know when you have i wouldn't say it's stage fright but before a gig like i get so preoccupied with like that that i'm gonna be able to be played 100 percent that it just freaks me out it's and after the second song it's always fine the gig's always good i'm always happy but there's this thing before the gig the two hours before the gig it's getting harder and harder it's really i can really feel it it's a strange thing and you know what you know how it's really weird with me how it shows up it makes me i get tired it's not like I'm freaking out. It's not like I'm nervous. What happens is I get really tired and I don't have any energy. And I don't have, I'm not going to have enough energy to go on stage. It's a very strange, strange phenomenon. And I noticed that when Fetha Moore started doing the gigs again, we started having that. And it, there's a certain things I think, you know, with more touring, you, you get a little better at it and you can manage it. But, you know, when we start doing gigs again, I, I, you know, it's, even with MC50, I mean, it's a strange, it's a thing that happens. It's a thing that's real. I don't think it's going to go away. I can't, I like, just imagine as well how uh, much of a trip the first show for everybody is going to be, both audience and performers alike. It's going to be this collective moment where everybody's almost, like, re-experiencing something for the first time. Weird. It's going to be so wild, yeah. isn't it? It seems hard to imagine right now. It really is hard to imagine. It does. I want to ask you one more question before I let you go, Billy, if yep. that's okay. I've had yep. a no lovely, problem. lovely time chatting to you, mate. And uh, thank Good. you so much for giving up your time and being, totally. being a gent. Have... Thank yeah. you to Dawn for being the best and setting cool. it up. Um, I'm glad you've been interested to do it. That's great. What is, if you had to pick one, your favorite Faith No More song and why? Oh, I can't do that. No, I just can't answer that one. Yeah, <laughs> had to try it because I know you're so close to so many. Uh, they're all different. Yeah, I don't know. What I did... can tell you, I don't really listen to that, that music. <laughs> so it's kind of done. It's it's like once it's done, it's done. It will play it live and, and and all that, but it's not like I don't focus on it. I don't think about it. If I do, like like I said before, if I'm in a in a bar or something and somebody's playing a song, I'm listening for mistakes. Yeah. That makes sense. It, yeah, it sucks, really. It really takes the pleasure out of it. But, <laughs> yeah. I, you, would say, I would say, though, of the albums, though, that I like, I think the album, you know, stuff off that is probably my favorite, even though it's not really high energy in some ways. It's a little more moody. I, there's something about it that it connects with me. And are you happy with, with everything that's been, you know, laid on and, and, and documented forever? Is there is there still obviously much more to do? But are you, are you content and happy with with your body of work so far? No, no, I'm not. I think I think there's things I could do better, uh, and and that's just the way it is. That's the nature of it, I think too. And I definitely think there's room for improvement. I think the next record, if we do one, it'll sound different than the last one for sure. And I think it'll be in a, in a forward direction. I love it, and I guess that will always be the way it is, right, for, for people like yourself who are that way inclined to always improve on the yeah. list. It's it's good news for people who like what you do, uh, <laughs> but there never comes a time <laughs> when you're like, I've completed it, I'm done. And and that's I think that's what keeps us young and keeps us excited about not just art but, but life as well. I feel like that very much is there's always more to do and always better to do. And, Great to uh, look forward to something always, right? Exactly. Forwards, not backwards. Yep exactly amazing 
Um, I hope you have a great day, yeah. Billy. And either this side or your side, I hope one day we get to connect in person and, and hang out that and have a, awesome. have a beer and a chat in the, uh, the real world. Would love to do it. Thank you, mate. Thanks, Matt. Talk soon. But I just can't stand the pain Girl, I'm leaving you tomorrow Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 